whatever you're doing, you got to have something that's yours. Yeah. It's just that, like, you need that. Hello and welcome to Where the Living Room Used to Be, a podcast about Rhode Island's music scene. Hey everyone, it's James. On this episode, I sit down with John Allmark, a prodigy musician that came to Rhode Island from his native England when he was a teenager. John talks about his experience with the jazz scene in our state and the huge name acts that he's performed with, including Aretha Franklin, Liza Minnelli, and Frank Sinatra. We also talk about his role as a band leader and how being a part of what's considered the longest continuously running big band in the United States came about. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and as always, please follow along on Facebook and Instagram at Living Room UTB for live photos and more from John Simon Music. So I'm from just a small town outside of Manchester in England. Manchester, England, yeah. A town yeah. called Staley Bridge, which nobody here would have heard of for any reason. <laughs> and being in the northwest of England, it's a... It's a part of the country that's very rich in brass band culture. Okay. Um, to this day, and now it's, uh, it's 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 a very difficult genre to, to explain to people from outside because it's although it has spread to other parts of the world, it's like a religion. Meaning. Really. So you go into a small like like here in this beautiful place in Blackstone. If you were to be in a place that looked very similar to this in England, there would be at least four or five brass bands in this area, consisting of twenty five brass musicians. Yeah incredibly serious about what they do. Mm-hmm. And so there's a whole culture of brass playing in, in, in Britain that goes back you know, to the 1800s. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, so growing up there, I uh, used to see the town band play all the time, and my family was friends with all these people who were in the band. I always wanted to play in the town band. So um, when I was eight, I got my first cornet. Okay. For those of the people who don't know, a cornet is, is uh, an instrument similar to the trumpet. It's like, it, looks, it looks like a shorter version of the trumpet. Yeah. And actually, in English brass bands, that's the instrument they use. They don't use trumpets in, oh, okay. in, in English brass bands. So, right. uh, so a cornet. So I began playing a cornet when I was eight years old. I took lessons, and I remember my first teacher was, that you got somebody out of the newspaper, basically, which was a, was a horrible person. And so, it's <laughs> just horrible. Just a, just a tyrant, really. I, ne- I nearly quit, anyhow. And um, luckily... Because it was just so much It was just a horrible culture. person. Just yeah. like, so you learn as you go on, you know. You're a kid, what do you know? You know, I show up and be terrified, you know. <laughs> Playing, you know, oats and beans and something, and there's some, you know, punitive part to this that I didn't really, you know, I was pretty sure it wasn't supposed to happen. But anyhow, um, <laughs> luckily, before I quit, I found a teacher with, a, with the local town band, the principal cornet player at a band group. And it was great. And so I flourished in, in that environment. Mm-hmm. And so I went to a music high school. I was trained. Uh, by that point, I was, pl- I was still playing in English brass bands. Um, playing corner, but I'd also added trumpet now to my mm-hmm. repertoire. And basically, what that school did would, would teach you to be a, a professional orchestral musician, classical musician. Oh, okay. And so I studied classical trumpet and um, was there until it was about, I think, well, when I was 15, I'd won, um, not even before that, come to think of it, I might have been 13. I'd, I'd won a bunch of different solo competitions, uh, and I, I ended up doing a, a tour over here. I came to the States. Yeah. And I was a guest soloist at Disney World, 
uh, in Washington, D.C., and actually I'm with, uh, with a town band here in, in North Kingston, of all places. But the gentleman that hosted our visit, I came over my mother, yeah. uh, later became my stepfather. Okay. So my mother met him, yeah. and I finished my Uritz at high school there when I was 15, and, and f- followed her over here. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, budding orchestral trumpet player, 15 years old, short um, in Rhode Island now, yeah. I auditioned for, I, I was accepted at Juilliard, I was accepted at, at Boston University, and, but I was 15 years old, so <laughs> they just, you know, they decided to skip high school for me, but um, or the last parts of high school, because the stuff I'd done musically was, was pretty advanced by that point. So, yeah. so the, the way we worked it out was, you know, my, my stepfather lived in South Carolina, lived in Saunders Town, actually, so I ended up going to URI, because it was near to home, I'm 15 years old, Yeah. and... Uh, that made sense for some reason. So yeah. So I get to URI and I wasn't so enamored with you know the quality of the classical music. I was not, I was used to something a bit more you know, yeah okay bigger or whatever better. But so because uh, of curiosity, it was there was actually kind of a small but budding jazz program there. And I said, well, when you get sign up sheet for like the big band or something, and I said to some, but you know, oh, you should do it. It'd be fun, you know. Yeah. So I signed up for. Uh, Audition for the big band or something, and uh, I just I just fell in love with with jazz and commercial music at that point, you know. And it was it was interesting because it was such a small school, so few students there, but enough that we could always get groups together and play all the time. And I okay. I'd already started, I was already writing, uh, you know, classically at that point. But then I started, you know, getting interested in writing, you know, jazz arrangements and things like that. It was always people to play stuff, so it was almost like a perfect time to be there. Not necessarily yeah. to get a degree, but yeah. to be around a lot of other people and, and realize that, you know, I don't want to sit in an orchestra the rest of my life. I kind of like this. It's a little more, something more creative that, uh, that appealed to me. And that's yeah. how I ended up at URI. Yeah. And that's how I ended up steering my course away from classical music, which I still love and, and try to keep uh, on top of, mm-hmm. into more into jazz and commercial music. Okay. Now, it's not that long after, after a couple of years, they lost their accreditation. Uh, a lot of students went to Berkeley. Yeah. Uh, and other places. And I was working a lot. Yeah. So, so URI at the time had like a full like music program. They did. The Jazz yeah. Studies program lost its accreditation at that time. Oh, okay. And uh, those guys left and I I was gigging. So I didn't want to teach at that point. So mm-hmm. so I, I started working professionally, you know. Okay. And what what was that first professional The first job? stuff we were doing. I, um, that's interesting because URI at that time, uh, one of the teachers there since passed away, Art Modica, he was a teacher, music ed, and he was a trumpet player too. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also had a business in Newport. He used to supply he had a, um, an agency that he had, a, had a, like a swing band okay. that used to play in all the mansions. There's was a, there was a couple of people he used to do oh, that at that yeah. time. Michael Caller also, who I later would hook up with and play with for many years. But And so myself and a, few, a couple of other students who were younger but certainly eager would started working, doing these jobs in these mansions with these swing bands. Okay. And, um which was great experience at that age, you know? Yeah. You take all the money, you buy as many LPs as you could. That's all we wanted to do was listen to jazz all the time. Oh, really? Like, what were you listening to? Uh, that's what I was getting. I was, I was so immersing myself in everything. It started for me was like, because I remember the first time I saw a Miles Davis album, and I had no idea what Miles Davis It looks, It looked cool, though. It looked, yeah. you know, it's got a trumpet, you know, and it looked, it looked And uh, so I remember taking this out. Yeah, I remember, this is still in England. I remember taking that album home. And I think it had stuff on it from four and more and some of those things. It was probably a compilation. 
And I thought it was just horrible. I couldn't understand the <laughs> damn. I had no idea, no, no basis for what it was. I have no yeah. idea what. To me, I just listened to a trumpet at that time. was like, if you know, it was all based in classical music. So everything had to be pristine and perfect and all that kind of. I had no idea what I was listening to. It's like, ironically, years later, you know, that recording and stuff was some of my favorite stuff ever. But I just didn't have at the time, I, I had no point of reference. Yeah. Thought it was just sound like somebody make a lot of mistakes or something. I didn't <laughs> understand, you know. But uh, but certainly when when I was immersing myself in, in jazz as a, it was like a whole. Yeah, it was a whole new world for me. It was, it was so much to start. I started. Uh, I got very much into Clifford Brown. I related to Clifford Brown as an improviser and a trumpet player because he's very technical and. I had a pretty strong technical background, mm-hmm. and from there, you know, through Miles, you know, Freddie Hubbard's always been my my hero. That was who I've always modeled myself after. I would say the most, if anybody, but many, many musical influences like that. But, mm-hmm. And that was somebody I got to, to meet and to who helped me at some point too was Freddie Hubbard when I was fairly young too. Cool. Yeah, and then when you were doing these shows at the mansions, like, how were you still a teenager at that time? Yeah, I was a yeah. teenager. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, these are like. Oh, these things, man. It's funny because there were so many jobs at that time that were kind of like swing bands, and then a bit of commercial music in them. It hadn't quite. It was. It was still uh, functions and, and weddings and things like that. Yeah. Uh, the mansions were still. This, it was still like black tie events. They're a little hoity-toity, you know. So it still had to be like based in society and stuff like okay. that. Okay. And so the cool thing was you'd learn a lot of tunes, you know, older tunes, standards yeah. and yeah. things like that. Things young players don't really get exposed to now. I mean, I'm probably the last of a generation, you know, that learned thousands of songs, you know, yeah. that were really useful for us to, to know from doing that kind of work. Yeah. So we played all those mansions and all those kinds of commercial venues. And anything else on the side at that point, we already started putting my own jazz things together. Anything mm-hmm. else you could get, you know. But by the time I'd say when I was, when I was to be 19, then I went on the road I got Liza Minnelli's gig at that time, which was a, which was a pretty big gig to get at that point. Yeah, what uh, were you doing with her? Like you were playing in her band. Yeah, I got to be in the band. The other the other trumpet player was actually from Rhode Island. The lead trumpet player was from Rhode Island, and we'd become uh, you know friends. We worked together on a lot of things. And who was, uh, who was that? That was Joe Giorgiani. Okay. Now his brother Tony Giorgiani also had a big band. There yeah. were there were two big bands in Providence at that time. On Monday night, Tony Giorgiani had a band called the Jazz Odyssey, which played at Allery's. Right. On uh, on North Main Street, and Duke Blair's band, as I'm sure you're aware, was working at Bovis Tavern in East Providence. Yeah, yeah. And so for myself and some of the students at URI, well, if we weren't playing, we would get into carloads on Mondays and go to both places and listen oh, to okay. all this music, you know. <laughs> yeah. But then, you know, bit by bit, we get to, you know, one of us or a couple of us might get to sub on one of the bands. It was a big deal, you know. So oh, wow, yeah, yeah. And I ended up subbing on on Tony Giordani's band, and Joe happened to be, the lead trumpet player happened to be off from the road um, and got to uh, play together for the first time. But that be, it began, you know, a, a musical collaboration for many years. But he he got me, you know, my first real real job, my first break as far as a really good gig, you know, traveling yeah. gig like that. So I did that for a while. Yeah. And then, you know, when you come back to town, the kinds of work we were doing, doing a lot of theater work and stuff like that. So okay. between like you know, and stuff like that. Yeah, like stuff between PPAC and, and and the theaters in Boston, a lot of that stuff, and a lot of shows, a lot of act shows. You know, yeah. like um, you know the kinds of stuff like you'd seen on Fox was Mohegan or uh, you know big name acts, Ruth Franklin or uh, 
you know, Tony Bennett, whoever, all those kinds of, so, yeah. you know, like hundreds of these kinds of people. So yeah. luckily there was always a balance of work between theater and shows and live stuff. And then your own jazz things that you put together. Mm-hmm. So, we were, you know, locally there was still, there was still quite a lot going on between here and Boston yeah, okay. where you could, you could stay pretty busy, but and do a nice uh, combination of work. You wouldn't, wouldn't stick in, you wouldn't stick in a theater all the time. I never wanted to do that. You just have a couple of weeks here or there. That'd be great. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. How did you like connect with the other musicians that you performed with, like the other bands? Like, what is it? Is it just like a tight knit group of you know? Actually, uh, I think a, a, a really good example of that is that let's let's talk about the big band for a minute before we even talk about it. Obviously, you know I have a you know I have a yeah. jazz orchestra. But, <laughs> yeah, and, we, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and at the time, th- this is kind of important historically. In music is that Monday night jazz. Or Monday Night Big Band Jazz specifically started in in New York in 1966, mm-hmm. and at that time Thad Jones and Mel Lewis put a big band together. Mel Lewis, the drummer, Thad, the composer and cornet player, and uh, incredible writer. And the whole point of putting the Monday Night Band together was in New York City, most people, if they were working, worked Tuesday through Sunday. Oh, okay. all the theater shows to this day are Tuesday through Sunday. Yeah. Monday was kind of a dark night, but what it was considered more of anything was a networking night. This is the night where you would get out and you would meet other guys at so jam sessions, whatever it is. Oh, okay. People would use that night to get to know everybody else. Yeah. So the idea of putting a big band together, which was something that even then economically would have been a difficult thing to fund in a New York club. Yeah. Uh, the payoff for the musicians was... You get to meet this guy, this guy, and tomorrow this guy's going to call you to sub for this show, and this guy's going to. That's how your network of, of performing came I along. And and Duke Belair um, started the, the, his big band the year after that started in New York. He started it uh, in 1967, I believe, uh, here in Rhode Island. Yeah. And much with the same results. Yeah. Where where people just you know, want the opportunity to play with a great, you know, not to, we'd all used to playing in big bands and playing swing music for dances and stuff, but to play jazz in a, in a jazz orchestra yeah. it was something that guys really liked to do to get, to get a, ch- a chance to stretch, but to play some challenging material and, and also the networking uh, ability, which it did. Yeah. So I, like many other people, met the people that I met through those places, through either okay. Allery's and playing in that band at that time as they did, or in the years afterwards when I played in Duke's band. And yeah. all the time I spent at Bovis, up to the point where Bovis finally was where my band ended up for yeah. 17 years as well. So, so yeah. Monday night was a networking night more than anything else. Yeah, and okay. really important to getting yourself in the landscape of whatever's going on. Yeah. And who else have you uh, played with? I know you have like a long list of, of credits. Can you... The credits? It's funny because I don't I think about it that often. It was... It's, um, I could put him in like some of the things I really enjoy, like Frank Sinatra. I worked with Frank Sinatra. Yeah. That was, that was something that was very enjoyable. Tony Bennett, I mentioned. I toured with Natalie Cole. Yeah. Um, we did a lot of stuff with Barry Manilow around the millennium, which was really fun, actually. We did uh, we did a lot of dates with him. Yeah. Um, I did. So I actually did tours with the Buddy Rich band after Buddy had died. I turned down Buddy Rich's gig, unfortunately, because I was on working with Liza, which was a more prestigious, not a jazz gig, but, you know. Yeah. Liza Minnelli's gig was a good money gig, and uh, yeah. looking back, I wish I hadn't. But I did tour <laughs> with Buddy Rich's band yeah. when it with Dave Wecklin, um, John Patitucci were playing in the rhythm section. We did some tours where I played the jazz trumpet chair, which was super fun. I really, that was nice to still get a taste of that, you know. Yeah. Uh, some I loved Aretha. I worked with Aretha a lot. 
Um, we did all the Motown shows. I love Motown music. Temptations, The Four Tops, Stylistics, Spinners, all these groups. Well, Lou Rawls, Sammy Davis. Um, it is a lot. I'll remember them all in the car on the way home. But, <laughs> but a, lot, a lot of fun stuff. And in, and in between all that, like all professional working musicians, some of the things that, you know, eh, forgettable, you know. Yeah. We, you, gonna, work is work, you know. Yeah, 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 I used yeah. to tell people, like, you know, I used to get paid the same amount of money to work in Blackstone the Magician as I did with Aretha, and it wasn't quite the same amount of fun. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did some strange things over the years. But oh, okay. We used to do, we used to back up uh, Don Rickles a lot. It's recently passed. That was always, always fun. Don Rickles yeah, was a blast. Yeah. We did a lot of fun gigs like that. Joan Rivers, we used to work with you know, a lot of the comedians, Bob Newhart. Yeah. Um, yeah, like a, a really a ton of different kinds. That's what we kept it interesting too, you know. Yeah, it okay. was uh, certain things you look forward to more than others. Yeah. But what I always tried to do, no matter what was going on work-wise, and it was always, you'd always worry about work, you know. It was always, but it was, but it always ended up working out, you know. Yeah. But I always tried to have my own projects. From, from really, I started that as soon as I started really getting into improvising and then getting more into jazz when I was at school. Um, I, I, I was pretty much the only one that was arranging. In, in that class that I was there. And so I started putting my own groups together. Okay. But I always try and tell past that. He said, listen, whatever you're doing, you got to have something that's yours. Yeah. It's just that, like, you need that. It's a, yeah. it's a, if the balance isn't there unless you got something of your own that's coming out, you know. So I've always had my own smaller groups or different size groups or different types of groups. And then when I was 24 was when I actually – embarked upon starting the, the, the big band, the, okay. the jazz orchestra. Yeah. You know, before that time, we'd had a group, actually. I uh, played for a few years uh, around the early 90s. Um, there was a bit of a resurgence around the early 90s. There was a couple of cool spots where um, Amsterdam's was on North Main Street. Danny Moretti had a Monday and a Sunday that was really cool, and we used to play the Fish Company, which is now Whiskey Republic. That yeah. was on a Tuesday. And Last Call Sue on a Wednesday. We had a, we had a horn section called the Psychic Horns. Yeah. With myself, Danny Moretti, and John Wheeler, trombone players in New York now. And uh, and we had a band, the Psyche Horns. And the Psyche Horns used to play a steady Tuesday at the, the Fish Company. And we'd do Monday nights at Amsterdam sometimes. Cool. And that band went on for a while. And it, it was kind of an Art Blakey meets Maceo Parker band. It was kind of a combination of a little funky, but some straight ahead, you know, bop yeah. too. Uh, that was a fun band. And then after that, that's when, I think, like I said, I was about 24, I got to a stage where I used you know, summon in a lot of bands, big bands. I like playing in big bands, but you would always be, I'd always find myself one of those people who was sitting at the back going, oh, man, this, this is my band. I would never do it like this. Oh, this I don't okay. never, you know, just do this all the time. And so I was always your own band. And I was, I thought, yeah, why not? <laughs> you know, why not do that? Yeah. And um, interestingly... You remember Axel Rudd's music downtown? Remember they used to be Axel, opposite where where the piano place is, uh, Avery, opposite Avery. Axel okay. Rudd's music was there for many, many years. And there was, uh, there was an old guy in the basement, Gene Malone. 
was one of the guys in charge of music. He was in the neighborhood, my stepfather. So we'd always stop in and see him. But we, for, I was in there one time, and they used to sell stage band music, big band music and stuff like that. But yeah. they were clearing all this stuff out, and they were selling all this big band music in the basement. Just around like the time. Yeah, like sets of it, you know, these parts yeah. and stuff. So, like, yeah, I can have that for two bucks. I got three bucks for this. So I came out of this place with piles and piles of this stuff, you know. Yeah. And so I started putting a book together, you know, for a big band. Now, realistically, thinking back, not much of that music that I end up being as useful as I thought it was going to be, but some, a few gems in there. But yeah. I was working in Newport quite often at that point with Mike Pucalla, the piano player and band leader. And there was a bit of a Newport scene going on still. And I floated the idea to him that I wanted to put a big band together. And we went to the Newport Harbor Hotel, one of the places we used to work at on Sunday afternoon, and sold them on the idea that the big band would play in the dining room on Monday nights uh, at a certain point after the dinner service was over or something like that mm-hmm. uh, for the summer to see how it went, you know. And and the terms of it were basically I made I made nothing. <laughs> that uh, oh, but I got a meal. That's right. Uh, me and my friend. The trombone player mentioned play with the psychic horns. He, he used to come up. We used to pack up my Crown Victoria. I had an old Crown Victoria police car. And he used to cram all this gear. I got like, yeah, you know, sound system, music stands, not the greatest stuff, kind of beat ups, whatever I had. And then music, we'd somehow cram all this stuff into this car. Go down to Newport, wait for them to finish dinner. So set up the band and we get a free meal. And then the band would hit. Um, and we play and I, and it was... It just hit. It was so good. The band was so great. People just yeah. freaked out. And uh, it was actually, it was called the Newport Jazz Orchestra at mm-hmm. that time. They didn't even have my own name on my own band at that point, just to get the <laughs> damn thing working. Yeah. And uh, we had a great summer there. The band was fantastic. And uh, I learned learned pretty fast, you know, mm-hmm. what, I, what I wanted. I mean, the band has developed, obviously, it should develop over the years, but it was just a really good band, a lot of good players. I got all, all the guys that I wanted to play in the band. Yeah. I felt were the best guys, you know. Like who? Who was playing? At that time, it's funny. There's only two of us uh, left now from the original band. Okay. Myself and Bob Bowlby. Bob Bowlby is, is my lead alto player. He was also Buddy Rich's lead alto player for for many years. And uh, yeah, looking back, for Jones left. At that time, it was him. It was uh, who was this? I'm trying to remember everybody else. Mark Fanner, he lives in New York now. He's an alto player. He, mm-hmm. he plays in New York all the time. Arnie Krukowski was in the band. He was a great local saxophone player. Um, Rick Stepton played lead trombone with the band. He was with Buddy Rick for many years too. Uh, I've told you before, the trumpet player Joe Giorgiani was my lead trumpet player back then. Yeah, he was in the band. Dave Ballou, who's a jazz trumpet player in New York now, he was in the band. Uh, a lot of great players went through the band. That's awesome. And, and like roughly, what year was this? Like so this would be all right. So I would say this would have to be 1980. Yeah, 80, I'd say 89, 90, because we're coming up on 30 years. That's right. We're coming wow, up on 30 okay. years from the band. Yeah. Awesome. So that was its start. We played a summer, uh, three months. Yeah. In Newport. Band got a lot of a lot of attention. And uh, Newport being seasonal, though, came to the end of the season. And uh, yeah, okay. what do you do now? So that's when we, we hooked up a couple of things. We went to a club briefly in Cranston, like a sports bar, for a couple of weeks. And okay. then we ended up speaking to the people at the Roxy, which was on Park Avenue, mm-hmm. and lined up a deal. We ended up playing there for several years. It was a fantastic place to play. Yeah. And the, the band really did very, very well at that time. And at this time, Duke's band was playing at Bowie's, too. Yeah. 
And so there were two big bands going on. Yeah. We what, were doing really, happened? we were doing really, really well. They were starting to do not, uh, not as well because it's because they've been there a long, long time. You know, it's, we were a younger band. And yeah. Were you playing on Monday nights as well? Yeah, playing on Monday nights yeah. as well. So both things went on at the same time. I tried things. It's great. The more the merrier, you know. But mm-hmm. we had I had two singers in the band at that time. I had Sean Montero mm-hmm. I, and Clay Osborne. I had singers in the band. Okay, so yeah, yeah. And the band's been through many different versions. I've changed instrumentation in the band um, a few times. Uh, we don't do the thing with the, with the vocalists anymore. I, I've changed um, some stylistically what the band is now has changed a little bit. The instrumentation okay. of the band's slightly different. We've, we've been through a different different yeah. stages just to keep the thing fresh and to keep it moving you know yeah it's it's you know compared to when it when the band first played it was more of a traditional like woody herman buddy rich type in your face band yeah and really good at it yeah. uh, exciting you know count basie-ish but uh the band now is more well it more mirrors what what i'm into as a, as a jazz player myself it's more of a it's more of a, a more modern mainstream band it has all the elements of, of of the other bands, but it's 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 a bit more soloist orientated. So you get to feature okay. a lot of really strong soloists within an ensemble, yeah. rather than those bands are more ensemble, and that's a great thing too, you know. Yeah. And every now and again, I'll we'll pull out I'll pull out either live and we'll play you know Night of Buddy Rich music or something for the okay. fun of it. So. And how many members are in the orchestra? That's fifteen. Well, currently it's. We count it up so I don't make a mistake. Got, you've got four trumpets. To, the current instrumentation, which is not a standard big band instrumentation, is four trumpets, two trombones, four saxes, uh, piano, bass, drums, and myself. So that's actually 14 pieces. Yeah, okay. And I have a standard big band would probably would have five saxophones, anywhere from three to four trombones. And you say, well, it's only a couple people difference. But the way that you would write for an ensemble, it, it, uh, it changes Okay. drastically so actually i changed the instrumentation of the band so that it would force me to make the music for the band more original to the band yeah okay. uh, and i had different people writing for the band i wrote a lot more for myself yeah um the instrumentation of the band is actually the same uh, as maynard ferguson's band's instrumentations were in the 60s and 70s interesting okay. it was a slightly slightly different size big band yeah can you talk about the writing process that always changes. I'm, I'm just, hmm, I've always liked to work with other people's. You know, as as a as a band leader, you find yourself. It's almost like my band has never been a vehicle just to play my music. It's been to put together something that's fun to play, entertaining to listen to, which means covering a lot, a lot of music. So okay. going through that stuff, I found myself reorchestrating, rewriting, rearranging other people's uh, arrangements a lot. Okay. To, to build a library up of the kinds of things that we want to play. Yeah. You know, my process for arranging is I'll go through periods of what I'm more interested in than others, you know, writing wise. Um, it's, it's hard to say. I don't, I don't have like, you know, magic uh, marker for that. You know, it's like right, right now, most of what I'm writing is for my other group. I have an octet, okay. which is kind of an all-star version of the big band yeah. with five horns and a rhythm section. And we're doing some, some nice work around actually. And, and that's kind of an exciting. I've been writing a lot more for that. Okay. I started, in fact, I kind of got to a stage, I think, where, as I think you're supposed to do, where you become very comfortable with who you are as a player and, and a writer. And it becomes more natural to sit down and say, 
I've no idea what I'm doing here, but I'm going to create something with this song and and, and then just let it happen. It just be, you know, one time I get stuck a lot. I don't get stuck on things anymore. You yeah. know, I can, I can, you know, write uh, improvisers are, are usually the, the best writers because obviously you're creatively coming up with something as you go along. So, yeah, yeah. so I don't know. So, so I'm finding I'm writing the best stuff I've ever written, which is what I'd hope for this time of my life. And I should be yeah. playing my best too. because I teach writing too and it's like people have different ways that they can can do it mm-hmm. I can't do one thing at once in life particularly well but I can balance about five five arrangements in my head usually yeah uh, <laughs> but I so I get all so I get started on those things where I put in all that and I was sitting down at the piano just the other day a couple of Horace tunes and I'm like it's getting just getting some ideas mm-hmm. so I, that's kind of what my process is if there's a process at all it's been more about I've come to it more from teaching other people that they that they do better with the process. It's kind of almost picking up in a way. So okay. to try and get them to be disciplined, to be to get one thing finished. Don't just like because when I was younger, when I started writing before I really knew a lot, all the enthusiasm was there. But I'd have eighteen unfinished arrangements, you know. I'd get okay. the first part would be great, and then I'm like, nah, shit. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so, so now I'm uh, I'm not so bad. I don't worry about things like that. But uh, I've got I've got like four or five hard silver things in my head spinning around right now that are. Um, that are kind of starting to arrange themselves. Okay. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So we'll see what happens with them. Um, and who, uh, who else is in the octet with you? So the octet, yeah, the octet is, uh, uh, well, it's got, well, the instrumentation. We got, we got three saxophones, uh, trumpet, trombone, and rhythm sections. So myself, obviously, uh, on trumpet with Angel Subero. He's a Venezuelan trombone player, plays with the Boston Pops. And uh, he's a fantastic player. Plays bass drum. Plays bass drum one in the big band, but plays both tenor bass trombone. Fantastic. Bob Bulby plays baritone saxophone and the octet. Um, Bill Vint plays alto and tenor sometimes, depending on who's uh, the um, Dino Gavoni has been playing recently with the with the, gr- with the group. Somebody else I played with for thirty years too. Yeah. And if you know, out of the three of them, usually there. If not, uh, Tucker Antel is another player who's been playing with the group quite a lot too. Is a, a young talent. It's just ferocious tenor player. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the rhythm section is Dennis Hughes on piano, Brian Rizzuto on bass, Vinny Pagano on drums. Vinny I've been working with against for over 30 years on pretty much everything I've ever done. Yeah. And so the octet's got, um, we have, um, we've been working at this, uh, this club Askew, which used to be the uh, Fat something or Fat, fat Squirrel. Fat Squirrel, yeah, Century Lounge. Lounge. Yeah, we've been working at Askew. Yeah. So we're trying to establish uh, some jazz at Askew. It's a great room for it. It's fantastic. The stage, the sound is great. So we've been doing a couple octet dates uh, a month over there. Um, the octet started, well, it, it kind of came about, I have to go back to Bovis now, when it first started. I remember there was a December in Bovis, 
where guys started telling me, hey, you know, when we get to January, I'm going to be in the theater for three months doing blah, 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 this guy, this guy, and this guy. And I'm like, oh, damn, we have nobody's available. I can only trumpet oh, player. No, in, right? in the orchestra. Yeah, as I yeah. thought, what am I going to do? So I know a lot of small group kinds of things, but I thought I didn't go with that. I had the, but I had a bunch of four horn things I've been writing. And uh, I thought, you know, worst comes to worst. I mean, I think people would enjoy it. So first time I couldn't put like what I considered a quality band out because, you know, elite players were all working somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I put uh, this, uh, what would be a septet at that point, into uh, Bovis. And we did it on some different Mondays and people liked it a lot. You know, it was cool. a nice change of pace and it was still sounded, you know, like it's a full ensemble. Yeah. And so moving forward, as we move forward past Bovis, and now we play at the Met and Pawtucket, um, when it came time for a similar occurrence, a couple times it happened, I put the, I, 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 this time I'd expanded what I wanted to really do. I really got into my head. It took me a while to kick it around, but I was like, I really settled on this eight-piece thing. Yeah. And, and I love writing for it. So it expanded from the earlier idea of the septet, got to the octet, kicked that around, created a library, and we started using the the, uh, the mat. People loved it. That's and, cool. and so from that point, now we've established some regular work with it outside of there. So, yeah. so that's kind of the pet project, I guess you'd say yeah. now. That's cool to hear how excited you are about, yeah. about this. You know? That was an exciting <laughs> thing, yeah. So that's so that's that's a cool thing. Because, I mean, man, I mean, people in New York would kill to have those opportunities. So we may complain it's not the kind of workaround that we used to have, as we all Here do complain. Or... Yeah, but if you, but I still do some pretty cool things. Mm-hmm. You know, the New York Tet's a great, great group. Yeah. The big band, you know, it's an interesting thing. It's our 30th year. Um, the Met as a venue, well, here's the difference. The Met is a venue. It's not a club. Yeah. Uh, it's harder to sustain a venue because it's like saying, would you go watch, you know, Pick a name, pick a name out, I don't know, your favorite singer, or you know, touring artist. Would you go to Peepike once a month or four times a month to see them? No, you wouldn't, no. Yeah. You know, you might go once in a while. Yeah. This band on a big stage of lights, and it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But there's definitely a drop-off in the regularity of people going to a venue than yeah. they would to a club. Yeah, okay. Which is why we don't play as regularly as we used to do. Yeah. So, kind of assessing in our 30th year what to do with the band. Because I really do enjoy working there, but I, you know, we'll probably do some other things outside of there too, yeah. to try and get it uh, into some, some some smaller spaces where, because people miss having it kind of in their faces too. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit more about about that. You know, so you kind of mentioned Deke Belair starting the big bands at Bovies, and um, yeah. actually, did it start at Bovies or did it started? No, it started somewhere, somewhere else. Um, yeah. And I, I, I a couple of places, places, yeah. It ended up at Bobby's, which had had jazz. Yeah. And there were several rooms in Providence that I'm sure some of the guys will tell you from the, the older guys will be able to tell you from the Hall of Fame. Yeah. So the names of some of those rooms, I used yeah. to hear about them all the time. You know, where Duke Allenson would come and play and, yeah. and all kinds of like people. So. Club, yeah. Exactly, yeah. But uh, like how, how did that transition come about? When, like, our transition with yeah, Duke, just like when, when Duke was getting ready to retire. Oh, well, I was, was interested. So we were at the, we were at the Roxy. Whilst we were at the Roxy, Duke's thing was not doing so well. And I don't attribute that to one, that was not a competitive thing. That's mm-hmm. uh, one of the things I found is that when you've got a band, if you're in for a long period of time, if you don't switch things up, people don't come as often. It's just, you know, that's what it is. It's your responsibility as a band leader to try and keep it interesting. And yeah. to me, remember, it's not just going to be interesting to you, it's going to be interesting to people you hope want to come and see it. So you've got to take the stand back sometimes and say that. So we were at the Roxy. The Roxy, um, and we we had a great relationship with them. They sold the club, 
And it changed immediately, uh, as it will with any place, depending on who's there. Yeah. And we didn't stay there much longer after that. And we bopped around a little bit. Whilst we were at the Roxy, John Bovee had come to me and kind of already opened the discussion of, you know, moving forward someday, you think. But it was kind of, ex- I think we kind of always understood the band would end up at Bovee's. It just seemed to make sense. Yeah. Bovee's had the, the history. Mm-hmm. Um and it just seemed right, you know. So, so we'd already had that discussion yeah. um, a few years before it happened. Then we went when that place closed. We we went to, when the Roxy I said changed hands. We went to a couple different places. We went. We did um, a summer at uh, I think it was Shooters on the water. The place is still like a you know falling down over there. Right? We played an outdoor thing in there for the summer. Okay. Then we went to the Jewelry District, the place that's the art bar now. Yeah. Okay. Um, had been Tribeca. And briefly became Jezebels, and the big man moved in there, and that got sold out from under us. Uh, at some point during all of this, I think I went to John Bovey and said, "Okay, Duke's not Duke." At that point, was down, I think, doing once a month. Okay. I said, "Why don't we go in, do the other three, until Duke decides he wants to retire, and then we'll take over the whole the whole thing." Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Okay. So we went in there, uh, picked up the spare dates. Yeah. Uh, Duke played probably, he didn't play 12 months. He might have played eight and nine out of that year and some the next year, and then it basically transitioned. Yeah, okay. Uh, and, and it was, we were there for 17 years. Yeah, yeah. And did really well there. Yeah. And like with that, I mean, like that has to be like one of the longest Yes. Bands. Yeah, yeah. That's I believe uh, it was he was well. His band had gone for forty years or something like that. Forty something. Yeah. I forget the exact number, but that ran it. That's ran its course, and that was uh, that was a hard one to swallow. You know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, can you talk a little bit more about that experience of playing at Bovies? I mean, just with so much history, and then. Well, you do. You um, feel the history. You know, it's like. Um, and like the size of the place, and it's it was the was weirdest like place because there were certain sweet spots you could sit at that would sound great in that place. Because yeah. you look at the stage, if you went into that place and said, "Okay, I booked you a gig in this room, go check it out," you walk in a place and say, well, "That's not going to work." You know, it's <laughs> like you got this little stage, and the floors there, and um, obviously we you know you kind of for a big man it kind of worked out because you had you put the saxophones on the floor, yeah, and then on the stage where right the bottom you got the room section and the brass and. Yeah. which plays over their heads, which is kind of cool. And I stood in front with the room section. Yeah. Uh, Bovis is great because I could keep all my gear downstairs in the basement. It was wonderful. Didn't have to carry stuff around anywhere. Oh, <laughs> that <okay>. was nice. <laughs> um, the sound of the room, because uh, people uh, people could get right, you know, as you're sitting in front of me right now, yeah, that's that's how right. close you could be to the saxophone section of Bovis, you know? Yeah. Uh, people like that. It was a, a very friendly place where people... You know, it's like the old cheers adage, right? Everyone knows your name. I guess, yeah. real, you know, some places people are very comfortable being. Everybody knew everybody. And the coolest thing about it was that, you know, Bowie's didn't have to advertise. It was, no matter where you were, if you're on a Monday night, you could say, oh, stop in Bowie's, the band's playing. Yeah. You always knew that, you know, it was yeah. always going to be. That wasn't until the last year when things got a little iffy over there, but they would get, they'd start getting nervous and there's a storm coming and all Whatever. But play, you do feel the sense of the history of the place for sure. There's no question about it. Yeah. Uh, I was very proud to, to, to take over that, that gig. And in fact, we honored, uh, I, think, I don't know if you were there, the, the, uh, the music hall, uh, one of our last performances there, we, we honored Duke 
and yeah, his, uh, his induction. Yeah, and uh, and I was asked to speak, which I uh, which I was I was glad to, but I told him I was really very proud proud to have taken over, what you know what he started and how much that meant to all of us. Yeah, you know that, that we wouldn't have had the opportunities to play as musicians if if we hadn't have had that forum, if we hadn't have had that place, mm-hmm. that melting pot, you know. Yeah, I mean, just just like thing, yeah, and the interesting thing about Bowie's is, I mean, they used to have some bands and stuff on the weekends, but they never were able to make it into a, nobody ever would go see jazz there any other night. It never worked. Oh, <laughs> never, really? like they yeah, it never it really worked. <laughs> it was like this, it was always like uh, you flipped a switch at like about 7.30 on a Monday when its regular clientele would disappear, you know, wafted off into the uh, into the reeds or something. And the, uh, <laughs> and the jazz people would come in or they... But it was such a mixed crowd, you know. You feel you feel welcome there. I mean, one of the things that they, that John used to like to promote, which we keep to this day, he used to like to have high school bands come in whenever possible. You got a high school band and open up for you, you know. They think it was oh, the greatest okay. thing. So, and we we do that uh, to this day during the summer, especially. We usually had an extra date in the summer every month, two two a month. So yeah. we got the all state band has opened up for us a couple times the last few years, and yeah. a couple of the better. Uh, stronger jazz programs have come in it's, and it's nice you feel like because uh, then you remember, I remember it was like just going there just being a college student you're sitting there and you're so excited you know with these kids and I get to be on stage and play and play the gig you know before yeah. we do so you like to see more of that mm-hmm. you know there's definitely a low when I started my band I was the youngest guy in my band and the weird thing was I was the youngest guy in my band still for about 20 years okay so yeah. Where did the, in other words, there was a huge gap. There was yeah. a huge gap of people coming up behind me that didn't seem to happen anymore. Yeah. And, you know, you get occasion, you know, well, you see you run into somebody, but f- for the most part, you know, I used to say last of a generation, but it was definitely a gap, yeah. you know, because yeah. I always try and get new talent, and mm-hmm. you always got an eye open for who's, yeah. uh, who's really playing. But you work as an educator now as well? Like, do you I have. Or? I teach privately now. Okay. And I've been through the whole thing. I've done all that stuff, too. Yeah. Did you uh, teach like at any schools? I was a, I did. I taught at Providence College for five years. Oh, okay. I was working with athletics though, so I had. I had but I had a program. I had uh, a funk ensemble there. Oh really? A whole curriculum I developed around around uh, uh, funk and R and B, which one I loves in music is uh, is that kind of music. Yeah. In fact, I play with the band. You you've been to the Poly. You saw the, yeah. the, the uh, we played there for years. The Autocrats. Yeah. Which is a band I've been with for like the last four or five years, which also works at a SKU now. The Autocrats okay. works on Tuesday, Tuesdays at the SKU. And so, but I taught and had, I had a, uh, like a 12-piece funk band for a few years uh, at Providence College. In fact, we played at Bowie's. They opened up for, for my band a couple of times. It <laughs> was just a great band. Yeah. And one of the saxophone players in that band now I play with, it was my student, is now... Now I work with them all the time. He plays in the autocrats now, so it's kind of cool, too. Cool. So you're still doing the autocrats? Then? Yep. We're doing the autocrats. And how long have you been doing that at the, the parlor? Well, they were at the parlor. They were probably at the parlor a couple of years before I joined the band. Yep. So then it may be four years, and it's, we've been out of the parlor about maybe six months now. Okay. And we've been at a skew that time, although okay. we did play at the parlor for a benefit a couple of weeks ago, which was nice to play there. Yeah. I spend a lot of time, I go to the parlor all the time. I support the parlor. You know, Greg's a friend of mine. Yeah. And a lot of my friends hang out there and like to support the bands there. I wish more musicians would go and support bands. I think I think it's one of the missing pieces of what's going on right now. 
that I see. I sound like a grumpy old man, but it's like musicians sitting on their asses at home complaining and not working. Well, if you go out and support somebody, there'll be more of an environment where you can work too. So yeah, that's my feeling. the matter is you'll get an opportunity to play see what i always thought was cool about bobies was this what i like to think i did well with that band was we kind of brought Rhode Island's always had an educated audience jazz audience because they've, they've had some great artists through here as you know yeah so they've got to see a lot of great stuff yeah, yeah. but if you put a bunch of people in front of a big band and you start playing the most way out shit and stuff, you'll lose them before you've had a chance to bring them in if you yeah. get to put that and package that within something that's a little more accessible Mm -hmm. once you've got them they'll listen and yeah. you'll get them responding to things that you never thought they'd even listen to you've got to be smart about it you know it's, it's you've got to you've got to work you've got to play an audience if you if you wish it doesn't mean selling out at all but you've got to play an audience if you wish to maintain an audience yeah, you've got to be mindful what people ask people what they like engage people you can disagree with them it happens to me all the time yeah um but be, be in tune to that. I'm not so sure that jazz musicians are great at doing that. Yeah, okay. You know. And no, it's something that I learned of, like, playing to the room, you know. And just yeah. Kind of, like, I, I'm not a jazz musician, but, like, still playing and rock music. you got to play at a certain volume. You've got to play at a certain... Well, it's your job. You know, it's your job. You're being paid for it, it yeah. you know. There are opportunities for people to go out and play, many of them, to go play for... You want to promote your own concert where you can do anything you want, then you have to, you know, go for it. But... It's, it's your job. And, and, but the thing is, I always believe I got a responsibility to my, you know, my fellow musicians that I try and create an environment where you can come in and do your thing because I've handled it well, you know, and I hope you do the same thing for me, you know. It's like, mm -hmm. and I think jazz musicians lose track of that sometimes. Yeah. They get into that, you know, starving artist thing, you know. You know, with jazz, you know, I don't even know if you're jazz musicians anymore. We're musicians, you know, most jazz musicians like myself spend my year my years my career playing all kinds of different music yeah, you know yeah. i associate myself as a jazz musician because that's my you know my passion yeah but i'm a professional musician that means i play you know what is it, jack of all trades a master of all i hope yeah, you know but yeah. so sometimes people get a little bit into the someone asks the you artist to, to sit in on a different genre of music you're like sure what's you know yeah, what's that? what keys this in you yeah know? <laughs> well that's that's part of your job you have to learn how to do things and if you're going to learn how to do it learn how to do it well you know, that's what my my theory about starting an ensemble for college musicians that had to do with learning funk and R and B yeah. and soul and that kind of stuff was is everybody's got their own garage band around that age, yeah. but no one's taught them what makes pop music work or, or blues or R and B. How do these things work together? How does a drum on a baseball lock up together? How does that guitar thing? So how does James Brown's rhythm sections make a groove happen so that people want to move? Okay. You know, what is it that makes that happen? And if you bring young people in and show them piece by piece how those bits fit together, they blows their mind. Yeah, okay. So blows you bring them. it down to that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. You know, and I think you have to do with any type of music. I mean, jazz can be difficult to bring to people for obvious reasons. It can be a bit over some people's heads. It's almost like there's a certain amount of understanding. It's almost like you need to write, hand out a flyer. If I read this first, yeah. you know, like the disclaimer. Yeah. But when people see jazz, good jazz musicians perform together, they start to 
pick up on the interaction that's going on. Okay. And rather than if they were just listening to an audio recording where they wouldn't they wouldn't have that perspective, I guess, yeah. they might listen to something and say, well, I like the sound of that. But when they see, especially when they see a large band, yeah, and it, which has got such power, but also so much finesse too. But when they see that in, in real time, but they see, man, there's tenor players playing this solo screaming fast rhythm section, looking at the way the rhythm section is interacting and rhythmically what they're picking up in a conversation. They get it. Yeah. They may not know why it's happening, but yeah. they know something's happening. Yeah, and that's kind of cool, you know. But but it's by the same time when I talk about commercial and pop music, what I felt has been missing uh, when you get into teaching college kids is you gotta you gotta break these things down and show them on a basic level what you know. Don't discount pop music or something like you know. These these are all these are all important art forms. They all have something that makes them work. And who do you teach now? Like what age levels are you? I just I have a couple of private students. That's all. It's okay. so. I have a 15-year-old student who also has his own big band yeah, and is a writer, which is interesting. What's the name of that band? Uh, Cameron Shave. Yeah. He has a band up in, well, he's in Bridgewater. That's cool. And uh, that band has opened up for us at the Met. Yeah. Really good band. Uh, yeah, they're doing they're some good things. And, and he's a, he studies writing with me, too. So, I mean, that's an interesting thing. It's not many people uh, that age... As interested in the same things as I was at that time, you yeah, know, so. yeah. And although his although his path has been a bit different than mine, yeah. uh, there's obviously a lot of similarities at this point. So, mm-hmm. so trying to teach him not to make some of the mistakes I made, but you know, yeah. that's part of it. <laughs> cool. We'll see. Are there studios in Rhode Island that you've recorded at? Well, used to, that's for sure. Yeah, like, everybody's yeah. now everybody does everything at a house now. I remember used to when we used to work at Normandy Sound, of course, at one time. It's a nice sessions over there in the day because it's such a great room. Yeah. And uh, well, I used to work with Dan Murdy a lot around, you know, the 80s and, and 90s at the time. And he had Celebration Sound, which was in Pawtucket. So yeah, okay. he used to do a lot of stuff there. Um, what would you say is your greatest music accomplishment? I think the what the big band, uh, the level of excellence that the big band set in this state for that length of time I think it's pretty special when you think about it. Yeah. You know, when you think of a small place, obviously like Rhode Island, and you think about that they had one of the best big bands in the country. Yeah. Well, technically you still do. Yeah. 30 years <laughs> I had. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's pretty cool yeah. when you think about it. Yeah. You know, because to me it's like um, it's evolved. It's got It's got better as it's supposed to. Yeah. Uh, it's changed um, as I've changed and, and it will continue to if I continue to, to do it. Um, I think we're at a stage now where it's being taken for granted, which yeah. which happens to people after a long time, you know. I don't think there's ever been the support from the state for what the band has done. I don't think there's there's been practically no recognition for what the band has done. Oh, okay. Uh, practically nothing. Um the the support from the local the press like the journal over the course of thirty years you get one story every ten years if you're lucky you know okay. it's been non-existent uh, and I think for a place that likes to start I mean Providence likes to talk itself up now it's kind of an arts hub uh, you know to do with you know culinary and all other kinds of things and we look around us and as you look around here for instance and see some pretty nice looking places now yeah. Uh, the way that Providence talks about supporting its local artists, and yet 
my experience of it with something which I know is special uh, does not quite line up, let me put it that way. We saved Jazz in Rhode Island when we took over Bovis. You know, it was Duke's thing had, had, had pretty much run its course after as important as that had been. It had run its course. Yeah. We saved it and made it run for another 17 years and now another, you know, yeah. bunch of years beyond that still. Yeah. That means something, yeah. you know? Absolutely. And the time you think about the artists, you know, but the things that we the Rhode Islanders don't look at, uh, you know, in the music business, look at your, uh, look at your theater, these beautiful theaters. You know, the way that things are with, with work and shows now, most of those theaters are not supporting local work anymore. I don't work in that theater anymore. Oh, you know, okay. people yeah, like me, they the people coming in who make less money, oh, you know. Okay. The business is, and, and business is business. I understand there are times when, when those things, you know, that's part of what we all prepare ourselves for in life. Yeah. But I would have liked to see the band had a little more opportunities uh, through the state to say this this band is this band should be iconic in, in the eyes of the state in some way. We don't yeah. get invited to play at the state. We don't get invited to any events or say that this is an important part of music history yeah. in, in this state. Um, I'm still waiting for it. It's never happened. Yeah. You know, nothing. Maybe I'll get a plaque on the wall posthumously. I don't know. It's not about that to me, though. To yeah, me, it's right. it's kind of, I don't feel it's like insulting to me. I think it's insulting to all these incredible musicians that have that have really said something and done something really important, you know, really, really good, you know. Yeah. So there's my accomplishment and my, my bitching at the same time. <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, it, it, do you feel that it's just uh, like jazz in general is, is like a separate thing from pop music that gets more attention and gets more? Well, that's bound to be. I understand that, yeah. you know. Uh, so jazz, it's always going to be a younger generation. Less and less are exposed to it. Uh, the arts in schools are talked about, but not as, not as much as not done as well as they'd like you to believe they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a young um, perspective... If, consumer really if a consumer is not exposed to live music and it's not a good experience mm-hmm. or if they are ex- if they experience something in jazz and it's so far below their head they'll always think that anything to do with jazz is weird you know so <laughs> good luck you know and we have all those we've always had those problems though com- connected but the big band i always felt was great for that the big mm-hmm. band was something where you didn't have to really understand it to know that something cool was happening yeah you know? it's very accessible yeah exactly Cool. Well, thanks, John. I appreciate your time. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's nice nice to pitch to somebody. (laughs) 